Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Um, just so thankful for your heart for evangelism and missions and the gospel going to the uttermost ends of the earth. And uh, I just praise the Lord for you, Mark. Thank you so much. Well, Cornerstone, as always, it is my joy to be with you, albeit only virtually for the past few months. It has truly been, I think, an unprecedented time in many ways between the coronavirus and massive lockdowns and the tragic and horrific killing of George Floyd and the, the massive worldwide response to that, um, the sadly occasional rioting and looting and violence that has been associated with that response, and uh, even to the extent of having uh, a portion of Seattle uh, attempting to break off and declare itself a Capitol Hill autonomous zone. And all that within the backdrop of an upcoming presidential election. Truly, it has been uh, uh, an amazing, uh, incredible time on some level, uh, incredible in the sense of almost not believable. And yet here we are. I think we are a little over three months now without meeting. And uh, I highlight that because I never want you to forget it. I never want you to get comfortable with it. And so when we are finally able to come back together in person, hopefully it will be that much sweeter to you, to all of us, when we can truly see each other face to face. Now, as Nathan mentioned last week, the dynamics associated with this remote Zoom call make it so that I don't really consider what I'm about to do to be preaching a sermon. So maybe we'll just call it a little Bible study, a little teaching time. And it also just so happens that this lines up perfectly with what I've been working on for many months, providentially. I've spoken to you previously about how I really enjoy doing word studies in the Bible. What we're going to do today is a New Testament study of commands that we're told to be doing always, or without ceasing, or continually. I should tell you that one of the reasons I wanted to do this study, and again, I've been working on this off and on for many months, uh, and in fact, the idea first came to me nearly two years ago. But one of the main reasons is that in considering the Christian social justice movement that I've been talking about for years and John has been talking about for years, it's a common tactic for people in that movement to try to tell you that you need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. You're not devoting enough time or money or energy to fighting this particular cause or that particular cause favored by the social justice advocate. Some might even claim that if you don't, you are guilty of complicit silence, or nowadays they're starting to say silence is violence, or even silence is consent, which is kind of a shocking statement that I'd imagine some people in the hashtag Me Too part of the social justice movement would ordinarily be quite concerned about. Now, I responded to that uh, line of reasoning, which I believe is flawed, in an August 2018 blog article entitled Complicit Silence. And if that topic piques your attention or interest, you can just Google Complicit Silence Han Cho and it should pop right up. But as I considered and meditated on this general issue more and more, I actually became very curious about the types of New Testament commands that we're told by Scripture that we need to be emphasizing, even to the point of doing these commands always or without ceasing or continually. And so that's what, I, that's what really started my research. I wanted to approach this topic in a very open-ended and hopefully comprehensive way. 
I didn't want to insert my own biases in a type of eisegesis or reading those biases into the text. I really wanted to be as comprehensive as possible. And if the scriptures ended up telling me that I needed to be, for example, fighting for social justice always, then I was prepared to own up to that and perhaps even recant some of my past words if that turned out to be the case. Now, I will give you a little sneak preview. Fighting for social justice always is not one of these commands. But to get into the technical background of this word study a bit, in the New Testament, commands in the Greek are expressed by what scholars and translators call the imperative mood. Now, I don't think you really need to know this grammatical concept in too much depth. So I'll simply say that many of these imperatives convey that the command in front of us is current and continuing. We're to do them, and we're never off the hook or exempt from doing them. Now, with that said, there are some New Testament commands which are highlighted and emphasized by additional Greek words. And again, these additional Greek words are typically translated as always, without ceasing, continually. And after what I felt was a pretty deep search of the entire New Testament, I ended up settling on the Greek words pantote, adialeptos, pentakairo, and diapantos. And again, I only say that just to give you an, uh, an idea of my methodology. But I believe these four Greek words capture all of the references in our English translations that I had been searching for. After that, I examined every appearance of these Greek words in the New Testament. And since my focus is on commands for Christians, I excluded narrative and descriptive uses of these words, as well as references to our triune God. And I came up with 16 verses that could be roughly divided into eight general commands. Four of these commands are more internal in nature, and four are more external in nature. Now, before I dive into these with you, I always like to qualify these types of messages that although I believe I did a complete and fair job, it's entirely possible I missed something or perhaps miscategorized something. And even with these 16 verses, other people could perhaps divide them up a little bit differently or have other insights into these verses. That's always the danger with topical messages and word studies. And I never want to just gloss over that because we're talking about the word of God here. But for whatever it's worth, this is the fruit of my labor. And you're welcome to tell me later if it's good or rotten fruit. We'll start with the four internal commands, the ones which are more attitudinal in nature. The first one we'll start with is prayer. And on that note, why, why don't we pray again? Lord, again, uh, thank you so much for this time together with our beloved people. I do pray that every word I speak today would be in accordance with your word and its principles and that the people would be submissive to your word, Lord. Just bless our time together. Just pray, Lord, that we would be just very perceptive to and um, alert to opportunities to share your gospel during this unprecedented time. And just may many come to know you just through the efforts of your church, Lord, during this time. We thank you, Lord, and just pray for your Holy Spirit to infuse all of these discussions and infuse these gospel conversations. And may the Spirit uh, quicken dead hearts. And uh, just, again, Lord, we pray even for a great revival in this country, Lord willing. In Jesus' name, amen. So prayer, 
We have three of these 16 verses that talk about praying always. And we'll start with 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. That's simple. It's straightforward. It's, it's very clear. And this is, again, this concept that we are to be praying without ceasing. Now, of course, even you know, looking at the life of Paul and looking at the life of the apostles, that didn't mean that they were always on their knees in their closet 24-7. That, that's not uh, what they were doing. They were about the task. They were doing the work of the kingdom. And so uh, what I've heard it said and I've read about and just in, in talking with men and, and women that I respect, just this notion of praying without ceasing is almost, it can be likened to a background noise in your mind of prayer, that, that you're praying for people, even as you're talking to them, and, and that you're, you're, as you're going about your life, uh, you know, one thing, you know, I've adopted is I try to pray before sending an email, especially if it's an important email or uh, an email that may not be well received, that there's a danger of that. Uh, just whatever it is in your life, the beauty of prayer, the beauty of being able to go to the, the throne of grace anytime you want, the, the joy of having the curtain that separates us from God torn by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is that we can pray anytime we want. We can pray uh, just in the highways, in the byways. We, we can pray uh, in the car, not with your eyes closed, hopefully, but we can pray at all of these times. And, and if you're doing this, if you're striving to do this, and, and again, it is a striving, and of course, no one's ever going to do it perfectly, but having this background noise of prayer in your, in your mind, it helps keep you God-focused and grounded. I mean, you're probably far less likely to explode at someone in anger when you're actually having a background noise of prayer in your life. And, and I just think that it's just such a helpful concept. It's so freeing and liberating to know that anytime we want to, we can go to the Father and just pray. And, and it's just so such a special, intimate kind of relationship. So again, this first verse is very straightforward. Pray without ceasing. Next, let's read the second verse, Ephesians 6.18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Praying in the Spirit now, you might think that that goes without saying on some level, but I think it's important to remember and highlight, just as Paul did here in Ephesians. Are we praying honorable prayers? Are we praying prayers saturated in the word? Are we praying selfless prayers? You see here in the, later in the verse that uh, with all persons and petitions for all the saints. I mean, so often I think our prayers, and I, I am guilty of this myself, uh, you know, tends to uh, maybe we say some time of adoration, maybe we say some time of confession, maybe we say some time of thanksgiving, but that time of personal supplication where we're praying for things that we really want, that, that can tend to sometimes dominate our prayer life, can it not? And, and I guess what I'm trying to emphasize to you is that when we're praying at all times in the Spirit, as we're talking about in Ephesians 6.18, then there's going to be much more of a tendency to make those prayers God-focused, to make those prayers outwardly focused rather than perhaps inwardly. And again, that's nothing, not to say you can't pray prayers of personal supplication. Certainly, we, we are to do that as well. 
But to be praying at all times in the spirit, I believe that as your prayer life grows over the course of your life as a Christian and matures, Lord willing, that there will be more of these prayers of upward and outward uh, praying in the spirit. So that would be Ephesians 6.18. And our third prayer in this uh, third verse on this topic of prayer would be Luke 18.1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. That's the words of our Savior in Luke 18.1. And this is really uh, what he says in the beginning of the parable of the persistent widow. And, and again, this, this verse is very specific that we are to pray at all times and we're to be knocking at the door. And not to lose heart. Uh, sometimes this is translated as not to give up, meaning that we should be persisting in prayer on a topic such that with a persistent widow, even when she was petitioning an unjust judge, that unjust judge eventually gave in to that petition. How much more so our perfectly loving and wise father. And, and just again, it's emphasizing this importance of at all times they ought to pray. So. It's really important to persist in prayer. And for example, even the prayer for an unsaved loved one. I know that just I was talking to the man who uh, was a key instrument in leading me to the Lord. And he was saying how he had been praying for me for a decade before I finally came to, to the Lord, before, like, before God saved me. And you too can persist in these prayers for your unsaved loved ones. And even though it looks very difficult, I know that I've had thoughts of that, like that of my own in recent weeks with respect to discussions I've had with family and, and just how uh, closed off they seem to the word of God or to the Bible. And, and yet I still must pray for them persistently like that persistent widow. Indeed, as it says here, at all times they ought to pray. So that would be our first of the internal commands, to pray. The second internal command would be giving thanks. And we also have three verses on this topic. We'll start with Ephesians 5.20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And I want you to look at that language. It's so extremely broad. It always, all things... We are to be giving thanks for all things. And just that means even the challenges and trials that God sends us, we're to be thankful for that, always giving thanks. And it's such a wild concept. And I think that it's hard maybe for people who are not Christians to understand how we could consider it all joy. My brothers, when we encounter various trials, Harry preached so well on that verse in the beginning of James months ago. But and yet it's so true. We, we need to be just being thankful for whatever it is the Lord may put across our path because our perfectly wise God has ordained that. We know that Romans 8.28 would say that, you know, he works all things out for the good of those who believe that even these difficulties, whether it is the coronavirus, whether it is, oh, I was heartbroken and in, in just my dear, my dear, dear friend, Jackie O, I found out, went to be with the Lord. Uh, just a week ago, and it just, I, I, I was in tears. But again, we know that we mourn as those not without hope. I, I know that she's basking in the presence 
of her precious and beloved Savior, who she loved so much. And, and we can give thanks for that. We can give thanks for the fact that we do indeed mourn as people not without hope, that we do have this eternal hope. And, and that's such an incredible blessing. And then when we trust in God's sovereignty, we know we can indeed give thanks for all things, even the challenges, even even horrific killings that we see that that just break my heart. That was another time that I wept when I saw the video of that police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck for over eight minutes, nearly nine minutes, eight minutes and 46 seconds, I think it was. It was just heartbreaking. And yet, again, we can give thanks for so many other things that the reality is that, you know, there can be some change that the vast majority of police officers are not like that killer, that, that there are so many things in this nation that we can be thankful for, that uh, we, we are just so blessed to be in the most wealthy nation, in many ways, the most safest nation in the world. And that, again, we see these horrific things, and yet we know that they are rare, that they are not everyday occurrences, despite the fact that the media highlights things a certain way. There are so many ways in which we can be grateful. This is not our home. We have an eternal home waiting for us, that we have the hope of the gospel that a desperate nation needs. So many different things that we can give thanks for, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And that's the perspective that we are to always have, giving thanks. Let's look at Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then, let us continually Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. There's a sacrifice of praise here, and that means a thank offering. If you look at Leviticus chapter 7, that's the context of what this means. And, and of course, again, we are always to be thankful for God. That, that's, that's so clear that, again, in terms of our thankfulness, as we're even being thankful for all things, that we can also be thankful specifically for our great God and how critically important that is. We're just, again, the, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And that brings us to our third verse in the topic of being thankful, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So just as we just were talking about giving thanks always to God, now we're talking about giving thanks to God for other believers. So again, we look at these three verses about giving thanks. We give thanks for all things, even the trials and challenges. And we give thanks specifically for God, to God. And we give thanks specifically for the body of Christ. And this is such a beautiful parallel to Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, which is, I'm not going to quote that to you, but it's the, it's the quote of, that talks about the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we know from Galatians 6.10, especially those of the household of faith, because 2 Thessalonians 2.13 talks about, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Again, it's such a clear message of thankfulness to be dominating our lives to such an extent that we are to be doing that always. 
our next attitudinal command, our internal command is rejoicing. And there are two verses on this concept of rejoicing, very simple verses. You're, you're probably familiar with them. Many of you may be. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. There's an explicit repetition here. Again, I will say is especially strong. The, the Greek word here is, is kairo, and it means to delight in God's grace. And again, we, it's just this, this beautiful reality that we have been saved from eternal damnation. We, we will instead spend eternity with our precious Christ. And that is nothing but pure joy, that notion. We need to live in that joy. We need to dwell in that joy. And, and it's just such a helpful reminder. The second verse in this topic is 1 Thessalonians 5.16. And if you thought Philippians 4.4 was simple, this is even more simple. Rejoice always. That's it. That's the verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. So simple, so basic. And yet it's so important that we are to be doing it always. As my friend Austin likes to say, there should be no such thing as a dour Christian. Now, some might indeed have a more natural disposition inclined in that direction. Others perhaps might um, have, have more of a naturally joyful disposition. But we need to remember that, especially during this time of crisis or multiple crises like I've talked about that we're going through right now. That joy is such an incredibly effective witness to the unsaved and for the purposes of evangelism. If everybody around you was freaking out, then if you're joyful, if you're giving thanks, that is truly going against the grain of our popular culture. It's just such a, such, such a, such a powerful witness. And I remember that was even impactful on me in various times, in various cases, when it came to the time when I was, uh, when the Lord was drawing me near to him. So remember that two verses on this. And again, one of those verses being a strong reiteration. Again, I will say rejoice that we are to be rejoicing always. So we had praying. We had giving thanks. We had rejoicing. And our fourth internal command is maintaining a blameless conscience. And there's just one verse on this, but it's so interesting and so powerful. Acts 24, 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. You know, I spoke about this a bit when I preached in December about the confident Christian. It is indeed possible to maintain a blameless conscience because we're in fact commanded to do it always. And this verse here in Acts 24, 16 is one of many places where the New Testament talks about the importance of a clear conscience. You can do this before God by not remaining in unrepentant sin. You can do this before men by acting honorably toward others, by keeping short accounts and not letting things fester, by, by being eager to be at peace with all men so far as it depends on you, as it says in Romans 12, 18. One way you can do this is by seeking and extending forgiveness quickly. 
that's that's part of the joy of maintaining a blameless conscience. It's just to be able to say, I am forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I am unable to discern any current unrepented sin pattern in my life. That praise the Lord, thanks to his grace, I have peaceful relationships in my life. And maybe there are some who are opposed to me, but word up to me, that would not be the case. That that I've done everything I can to be at peace with all men so far as it depends on me. To, to be able to have that, that peace, that comfort, that freedom is the type of freedom that only comes in Jesus Christ. And it's just truly liberating. And it's, it's really, I tell you that I, I really, my heart goes out to so many of my dear brothers and sisters who might struggle in this area, who might struggle with a lot of guilt that has been layered on to them over years, or might struggle even with assurance of salvation in these regards. And, and I have nothing but the utmost sympathy and, and my heart goes out to them. But just if we bathe in the scriptures, if we pray, if we seek wise counsel from people that we know, my prayer would be that some of that may be alleviated with the power of the Holy Spirit and that you would be able to live that life that would be to, as Acts twenty four sixteen says, that we could also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. That would be my prayer for you, my earnest prayer. That is what I want, to have that level of victory and confidence and blameless conscience in so many believers. So these were the internal commands. And and really, when you think about it, they're, they're pretty positive and uplifting, are they not? And so as I speak about that, you know, think of the, the importance of prayer, of thankfulness, of rejoicing, of maintaining a clear conscience and having that freedom and joy that comes along with that. I want you to notice what we're not commanded to do always from an internal or attitudinal perspective. We are not told to be mourning always. We are not told to be angry always. We are not told to be lamenting always. We are not told to always keep a rec- personal record of wrongs. In fact, we know from 1 Corinthians 13.5 that we cannot do that. We cannot keep a personal record of wrongs. We cannot do that and still be faithful to any sense of biblical love. So keep these always internal commands in mind when you consider the fruit of certain believers or organizations or movements even certain movements that might call themselves Christian. Do you see them and the people within those movements displaying prayer and thankfulness and rejoicing and having a clear conscience continually or even at all, ever? If not, you might want to think carefully, think two or three times before joining or yoking yourself to it, especially if instead of these things that we're commended to always They may be full of slogans and ingratitude and negativity and guilty self-recriminations rather than the things that we are to be doing always internally. Prayer, gratitude, rejoicing, freedom of conscience, maintaining a clear conscience. So those are the first four internal commands that we are to be doing always. Let's move on to the four external commands, the ones which are more action-oriented in nature. We'll start with speaking with grace. There's one very famous and very clear verse, Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech 
always be with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, when you look at this verse in Colossians, this doesn't just mean pleasant words, although that is certainly part of it. It means that what your speech should be conveying is the message of grace. It should be conveying the gospel. And as you know, the gospel also calls people to repent. Elsewhere in scripture, even as we add that concept, we're commanded to confront sin, to correct error. But even then, with Colossians 4, 6, telling us that our speech should always be with grace, we can even do those things, those difficult conversations with grace. If we're, we're, we're pleading for someone to repent, we can do that in tears. We, we can do that earnestly, that we can do that with a, a care for that person in mind and without, I pray, any shred of self-righteousness in mind. We, we can firmly disagree with a heretic, even as we also pray for his salvation. And we can do all of this with, with words as though seasoned with salt, which means here that our words are cleansed of corruption, that there is no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, as we know from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4. I mean, we can call someone to repent even without cussing them out or calling them names. And lastly, I would also note on this topic of letting your speech always be with grace, I should note that if you just don't think you can speak with grace in any given situation, if you just if you just feel like, I can't do it, and especially I would give the example of social media, if you just feel, I cannot speak to this situation with grace, well, that might be a good reason to just shut up, right? Pro- Proverbs 17, 28 says, even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. One of the grace gifts that God gives us in striving to fulfill, even though, again, we'll never be able to do it perfectly, but striving to fulfill this command to let our speech always be with grace, one of the grace gifts we have is that we can indeed just shut our mouths and be silent if the need arises. But I do think it's so important that our words be grace-filled and seasoned with salt, cleansed from corruption. And again, just my prayer would be that in those situations, those difficult conversations, those gospel opportunities, that the Spirit would give you utterances in those cases, and that you would, uh, as it says at the end of Colossians 4, 6, that you will know how you should respond to each person. Our next external command is exalting Christ in our bodies. There are two verses on this, and I'm actually going to cover them together. First, we have Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And our second verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. These two verses here are often also linked to other verses where we see the concept of Christ being exalted in our bodies. For example, we know from 1 Corinthians 6.19 that our body is a temple 
of the Holy Spirit who is in us as Christians. The Holy Spirit is living in us as a temple of the Holy Spirit in our bodies. Such an incredible thought. There's another verse that we often hear that we, we know from Romans 12:1 that we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And so when we consider these two verses together, the always verses relating to exalting Christ in our bodies, what Paul is saying here in Philippians and in 2 Corinthians, that he's saying that with all boldness, Christ will always be exalted in our bodies, whether by life or death, that that's our, that's our goal, to always exalt him in our bodies. How do we do that? Well, we, we exalt Christ in our bodies by using those bodies and living for him, by, by being holy and obedient, by especially abstaining from sexual immorality, because that abstinence would be befitting a temple of the Holy Spirit. We do this by recognizing that we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. That's how we do that by life. How do we do that by death? Well, when we talk about this concept of in life and in death, by life and by death, we think about it much like the dying of Jesus. We also exalt Jesus in our bodies. And remember how Paul, again, the author of both of these always verses, remember how Paul gladly spent and expended himself for other believers, how his body suffered pain and beatings and floggings and exhaustion, all for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of building up and equipping the precious believers around him. And, and again, you just even how Paul's body was pouring poured out as a drink offering at the end of his life. This is how we can exalt Christ even by death, much like the dying of Jesus, is to spend and to be expended for the sake of the gospel. Our next external command is persevering to the end. Again, there are two verses on this, and because they're so related, I'm going to cover them together. First, we have 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and I'm actually going to read verses 6 through 8. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And secondly, is Luke 21, 36. But keep on the alert at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So, on the surface level, one could certainly argue that these commands would be to always be of good courage and to always keep on the alert. But both of these verses have a reason for being of good courage and keeping on the alert. And that reason is to persevere until we are at home with the Lord. And stand before the Son of Man, as it says in these two different verses. So that's why we are always to be of good courage. That's why we are to be on the alert at all times. The Luke verse even adds that we should be praying for strength, also that we may persevere to the end and see our precious Christ face to face. And in a way, looking forward to that heavenly meeting with Christ is precisely 
what gives us the motivation and, and the strength and the joy to always be of good courage and to keep on the alert, just to remember the joy of that heavenly meaning. And, and I know so many of our earnest prayers are that we would just so much love to hear from our precious Christ. Well done, good and faithful servant. I know how much of a motivator that must have been for Paul in his life. So we had speaking with grace. We had exalting Christ in our bodies. We had persevering to the end. And our fourth external command is doing good works. And we have two verses on this. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is a glorious verse that comes right on the heels of a passage about our future resurrection. And precisely because we know our eternal fate is secure in Christ, we can be steadfast and immovable. And moreover, for the purposes of our topic today, we can be always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, we should always be overflowing with good works. And not just any good works, but in the work of the Lord. These are biblical good works as defined by the word of God and not defined by what might feel good to our human flesh and not defined by the eyes of our secular society all around us, which is becoming increasingly moralistic. But sadly, that moralism is not tied in many cases at all to the Bible or even to the Judeo-Christian history of this nation. And, And it's really sad to see that emerging in front of us. Our last verse is 1 Thessalonians 5.15. This is the 16th of these always verses, and it's the second verse when it talks about doing good works. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. This verse reiterates that we are not to repay evil for evil even if it were a tragic evil, that we should not repay evil for that. Again, it seems like so much of our current discussion societally. But rather, we are to seek after good for one another. And and the one another's here specifically means others in the body of Christ. Remember Galatians 6.10, that we are to do good, especially to our brothers and sisters, especially to the household of faith, it says in Galatians 6.10. But then 1 Thessalonians 5.15 continues and says, and also for all people, certainly including unbelievers, and even our enemies, perhaps, who were just doing evil to us. Again, such a mind-blowing thought that just in Christianity that we are even to love our enemies, which is such a radical concept in so many different ways. Now, I ended this list on doing good works because, in a way, it brings us full circle to the reason that I wanted to do this study in the first place. You see, there really is no verse that talks about doing justice always or protesting always. In fact, I'm actually quite confident that Scripture doesn't command us to protest at all, much less always. But what we do have is the exceedingly broad category of doing good works. 
of Christian liberty, of stewardship, of calling enters the picture. We have so much freedom in Christ. I love Galatians 5 verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Don't let someone else try to put a yoke on you, whether it's the Judaizers in Galatia during Paul's day or someone today demanding that you support their chosen cause or saying maybe even that you need to kneel and beg and wail and abase yourself because of some evil that your ancestors may have committed or for some trait that God determined for you at birth that you had absolutely no control over. Instead, use the creativity that God has given you to figure out how you want to do good works. And if you need some help, if you need some good ideas, think about going back over Harry's excellent Living to Love series. He had some incredible ideas about doing good works by loving our neighbors. And as you're figuring this out, remember Galatians 5, 13 and 14. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You have freedom, not a yoke of slavery. Do good works as your own conscience bids you, not as your neighbor's conscience might try to legalistically bind you. That's the precise message of the latter half of 1 Corinthians 10, 29. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? So maybe your passion is missions and evangelism. I was just at the, at the top of this message, I was talking about how grateful I am for Mark Tatlock and his love for missions and evangelism. Maybe your passion is to support missions and evangelism because, that, again, that's, that's such a vital part of it. Maybe your passion is to train up and equip and teach Christians in ministry like, like Nathan Usnitz loves to do at the seminary, or, or, or Harry loves to do at the university. Maybe your passion is caring for the poor to provide them with food, like, and also even more so with spiritual food, like so many of our beloved brothers and sisters do at Children's Hunger Fund. Maybe your passion is to fight the evil of sex trafficking. Maybe your passion is, is, is pleading at the abortion mills for mothers to be saved and not to murder their unborn children. Maybe your passion is completely legitimately caring for your family and raising up your own children in the way of the Lord. Because remember, we do have certain higher priorities biblically. Of course, the Lord is our highest priority. But even horizontally, even on a horizontal level, there are levels of priority. We need to provide for our own families or else we are worse than an unbeliever, as it says in 1 Timothy 5.8. We need to love especially the household of faith, as I've said a few times during this message in Galatians 6.10. We have obligations that we have, greater obligations to our own elders in 1 Timothy 5.17, to our churches in Hebrews 13.17, to our congregations in 1 Peter 5.2. We're commanded to honor our parents in Ephesians 6.2 and our bosses in Colossians 3.22, our masters, as the case may be in that context. We're commanded to honor the governing authorities, as we know in 1 Peter 2.13-17 and in Romans chapter 13. A, a, a command that so many people 
sadly seem to have forgotten in our day and age. And yes, I will add, maybe your passion is to fight injustice. Praise the Lord. We need people with that calling too. William Wilberforce had that calling. He was a devoted Christian. And he had such a great passion to end once and for all the evil, horrible, sinful, wicked injustice of slavery in the United Kingdom. And praise the Lord that Wilberforce succeeded in his efforts as he fought in Parliament to end the slave trade in the United Kingdom in 1807 and then supported efforts to abolish all of chattel slavery itself in the United Kingdom throughout the rest of his life. And even that was happening as he lay dying in 1833. What an incredible thing. And I'm so thankful for men like him throughout history who have had that deep conviction, that Christian conviction to fight for justice. You see, the body of Christ has many parts. And one person's calling may differ vastly from another person's calling. And if we truly want to appreciate diversity in the body of Christ, and I believe we should, let's give our heartiest amens to diversity of giftedness and function and creativity far more than we do with the types of fleshly surface features that 2 Corinthians 5.16 actually commands us not to regard. And so as we pursue that diversity in calling, I do pray that our study today might be of some help to you as you consider the things that the New Testament calls us to do always, to be speaking with grace and exalting Christ in our bodies and persevering to the end and doing good works. And moreover, that we, be, that we would be doing all of those things with an attitude of prayer and thankfulness and rejoicing and with a clear conscience of those who have been called to freedom in Christ. And that freedom is ultimately so important to remember. In fact, as we talk about this and as I reflect on it, I, I can't really think of anything more important to remember because... The reality is anytime we talk about commands and imperatives generally, but especially when we're talking about commands and imperatives that we're to be doing always, the reality is that we cannot do it. We can't do any of these commands always or continually or without ceasing. Our sinfulness prevents it. Our weak human flesh can't support it. And we are utterly imperfect and lost and hopeless. But God... You see, that's the beauty of Jesus Christ. Our inability drives us right back into the arms of our Savior, who was and is perfect and, and paid the price for all of our sins and mistakes and omissions and imperfections, who, who came down to earth from heaven and lived a perfect, sinless life and, and was persecuted by sinful men, and even accused unjustly and raised up to be crucified on a cross where he suffered and died, bringing up on himself, taking upon himself all of the sins of those who would ever repent and believe. And then he was buried and was raised in the third day, showing his victory over sin and death. That is the only hope for us. And as we meditate on these commands and imperatives, even the ones that we are to do always, 
we must never forget Jesus Christ paid it all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we're so thankful to you for your perfect word, for the guidance that it gives us. Just, we, we are so grateful to you, Lord, for our precious Jesus Christ. I just pray that we would go out from this message with just a fresh and renewed love and appreciation for him. And also, Lord, with the confidence and the freedom to do good works, Lord, in an attitude of prayerfulness and thankfulness and rejoicing and with a clear conscience. I pray that we would also be speaking grace with our tongue. I pray that we would be exalting Christ in our bodies and that we would be persevering to the end because it is all of our desire to see our precious Christ face to face. And here, I pray those words, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Cornerstone. I pray you have a wonderful rest of the day and uh, just a wonderful service at 1030 with Pastor John.